This podcast from Teacher is supported by the University of Newcastle, Australia. Top 150 in the world for education. From Teacher Magazine, I'm Jo Earp and you're listening to another episode in our series on school improvement. We're going to be talking about leadership coaching today. My guests are Karen Snibson, who's Principal of Phoenix Peter 12 Community College in Victoria, and Angela Mina, a leadership coach and executive consultant. They've been working together as part of a two-year Menzies School Leader Fellowship Programme. Now, the focus of the programme is on increasing collective teacher efficacy and it uses an incubator model, where the leadership fellows are encouraged to trial strategies and interventions within their own school context. We'll find out a little bit more about the model and the programme, but we'll be delving deeper into the developmental leadership coaching that's being used and how it differs from an approach that existing school leaders may be used to. And of course, we'll be chatting about how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected Karen and Angela's plans and progress. So let's get started. Hi Karen, welcome to Teacher. Now you're the principal of Phoenix Peter 12 Community College in Ballarat. For anyone who doesn't know then, that's a city in Victoria and it's about, what, say about 110, 120 kilometres I think from Melbourne. So can you tell us first of all a little bit about the school and its context? Sure, Jo. So we're a Department of Education and Training School, as you said, in the southwest of Ballarat. Um, primarily, we service the communities of Delacombe, Redan, and Sebastopol. We also um, have students who come from rural areas across the Golden Plains. Um, as a school, we're relatively young. We only came into existence about eight years ago when two underperforming schools merged. So that was Redan Primary School and Sebastopol College. This time of merger was a really unique moment in history where we took the opportunity to redefine what it was that we stood for as a school. And for us, it was unequivocal that we were here to serve our students and their families with a really authentic belief in our school motto, if you like, that uh, in knowledge there's opportunity for our students. The thing, I guess, that was really clear to us and emerged out of that process was a real commitment to our school values in terms of building high-quality relationships and really starting to focus in a much more fine-grained way in the learning that was going on. What um, also emerged and has become more and more important over time is the absolute drive to address an issue of educational equity and a single core belief that children from our area have an equal capacity to learn and perform and achieve outcomes as their peers from anywhere else. Is it quite a large school? How many students do you have enrolled currently? We are a large school now. At the time of merger, uh, the two schools were deemed to be failing schools, if you like, and so we were 
facing a PrEP enrolment of just eight children and that in itself becomes unviable and our secondary programs were the same. At this point in time, we're in excess of 1,500 students. We have 160 staff as well. Um, so there's been considerable growth in our college right from PrEP through to Year 12. So with such a large school then, I should imagine collective efficacy of staff's important. We'll come back to that a bit later on. We're going to be talking today about your work with Angela. Um, this came about through your fellowship with the Menzies Foundation, didn't it? I am a Menzies Fellow and I was actually fortunate enough to be the recipient of the inaugural Collier Scholarship and I feel humbled to be learning in both of those capacities. Um, when I think about my pathway towards Menzies, it, it progressed really from an awareness of the work of Hattie and Vivian Robinson, which was really about the impacts of particular styles of leadership and their ability to influence the learning outcomes of children. And now, Angela, you're the leadership coach and you're working together through the foundation. And I mentioned in today's introduction that it's something called an incubator model. I'm interested in hearing about that model and how you became involved in the program. It's a really interesting program. Um, the, the Menzies School Leadership Foundation is quite quite unique, not in its purpose. I think its purpose is similar to a lot of these um, programs. They aim to do what, what we all hope for, which is to improve um, educational outcomes for students. But what is unique about it is it's, um, it's a, a multi-sector collaboration. It's got um, philanthropist um, research, uh, the private sector, the education sector, these fellows, and we've come together to, grounded in the research of, of John Hattie on collective efficacy, to see what we can do together to actually make a change. Now, you mentioned, Joe, that it is an incubator, and that's exactly right. We're working with five fellows, and we're very much taking an inquiry and research lens towards what we're doing. We're looking to test and learn. We have some hypotheses that we're testing. Um, essentially, our hypothesis is that leading for collective e efficacy is actually really complex. It's a complex challenge for school leaders. And it's just one aspect of a really complex demanding role. And that sits within a pretty complex sector, the way it's set up here in Australia and probably more broadly. And then it sits in a complex operating environment and that was even before a pandemic. So Menzies is a collaborative effort, really looking at how we support leaders to better lead collective efficacy. And what we hope to learn from that are some things that we could um, scale across the sector. Um, and that's really the hope of this. Now, I mentioned before that, that Hattie's research sits at the foundation of, of what we're doing, and we're lucky enough to have him be involved, actually, with this program on the advisory group that um, really 
you know, looks to guide, I think, the work of the incubator. But of course, we work with the Menzies Foundation, uh, we work with ASA, we're working with Clear Horizon, who are one of the preeminent sort of outfits in social change. And where I come into this is really from the private sector. When I was first brought into this program, most of my leadership work had been in um, banks and large um, Australian listed companies like West Farmers and um, professional services firms and basically everywhere other than the education sector. And when Lizzie approached me, her view is very much, look, what is happening there that you could see um, and bring what's the best global thinking and how can we use it and have it be part of this collaborative initiative. So that's really the, the origin of my work with, um, with the incubator. Karen, have you worked with a leadership coach before and did you have any expectations going into this new partnership? Absolutely. I did have some... I, I too had formed the hypothesis that for that leading scalable improvement in a school the size of ours with the scope of ours was possible but an add-on program or a bolt-on would not do that it actually needed to really emanate from the core of the organization in the culture that I would commit so for me it was really um, I'd been studying through my master's at the Melbourne University in instructional leadership and I had wanted, I'd become really fascinated with the notion of efficacy and and really how to develop it within a school setting and increasingly understanding how complex that is to achieve. So from my point of view, there were two key drivers. First and foremost was to bring scalable improvements to the outcomes of our children because I absolutely believe with every ounce of my being that that's what they're capable of. The second one for me, and this part really excites me, is about creating a culture within a staff team that... I'd want to apply to as a, as a beginning teacher or a learning support person, the sort of culture that I really would want to belong to and the sort of culture that I'd want to send my children to, that you actually have this idea of what it is to create a workforce that has a singular focus around improving the life chances of the children who go to that school. And so the second part of your question, um, had I worked with a leadership coach before? Yes, I had, and in fact, I still do. Um, so I do have a principal coach. I've been working with the same coach um, for the last three years, and that's been a really, you know, a long and positive partnership. This work with Angela, I was ready in partnership to embrace the notion of reflection and what that might be and also uh, understanding that in coaching there's a model around um, modelling and sharing your practice, testing and teasing out ideas and really doing that in a quite personalised sense. To be fair, um, what I didn't have 
a full appreciation for was how deep uh, the process of reflection would be on my leadership, I suppose my what sits at the core of my leadership beliefs and how to engage with those in a different way so that I could be a better leader for this school community. And again, we'll dig into some of what's happened shortly. But Angela, from the coaching side of things, when you work with somebody then, and you mentioned there that prior to coming to this, you did very little work within the education sector, but a lot of work outside that um, with leaders. So what's the starting point when you work with somebody? I should imagine that it's about their context, is it? Firstly, working out what it is that they need, what they want support on. So if you cast your mind back, um, what kinds of things did you talk about in those initial discussions with Karen? Yeah, so it's um, it's actually very similar to process to how, as educators, um, you support the learning of, of the children in your school. I mean, one of the starting points is data, and that's what we used first before the conversation. So there was a, a range of different assessment tools that we used um, to bring that data together in a way that might be meaningful to Karen and her challenges. So that was our starting point. And we used some standard kind of psychometrics, but we also used a way of assessing um, how Karen and, and all the fellows thought in complexity. So how the skills that they had that helped them operate in complexity. So we looked at a lot of data. Um, now, data isn't useful unless you can turn it into insight and then that insight turns into action. So we looked then for the intersection point with Karen and her role and her context. And the single most important thing I feel like I did was go out to see Karen at Phoenix um, it was just a wonderful experience, actually, but I'm not quite sure we could have got to the heart of things without me doing that. It's so informative to see somebody in their context. And, of course, we, we sat and talked and, and we had a bit of career history and I understood a lot about um, what motivates Karen and what brought her to this role and her leadership journey. But I learned equally from what she showed me and the children I met and how she interacted with the teachers and what she was proud of and what she said and, and what she didn't say. And so together what we did was look at our observations of the context, um, Karen's goals for collective efficacy in the school, what she really wanted to see, and then we mapped the data about who Karen was and what her skills were against that. And then fundamentally, we started with a pretty simple question, which is what would be the one big thing that you would shift and grow in yourself in order to grow collective efficacy in your school? So our first conversation was very much me um, understanding and learning from Karen about what she was trying to achieve and what was important in terms of her own personal growth as a leader. Karen, you're also working with a principal coach. What is it that Angela's able to bring to the coaching that's slightly different to what you've experienced before? The different perspective is a really sharp focus on what sits behind my leadership actions and really growing to understand those, unpack them, see them for their strengths and for their opportunities for improvement 
and then plan together and and really plan together with um and and Angela's role is often uh teasing out my thoughts keeping keeping the focus on what steps do I need to take, who do I need to become, how do I need to grow as a leader. And there is a a key and important difference around that and a lot of the principal coaching is around uh, strategic actions that I might take in the school, you know, how I establish a study centre or how we go about implementing tutors. But this is a, a, a much sharper focus on the growth points that I need to have as a leader. And when Angela and I were talking about this, it was really, uh, we came, we settled on, upon the term as growing the cup of a leader. And that process in itself um, is certainly not an easy one. It it really deepened my thinking at first. I, you know, when I began the process, I had this anticipation of things that I would learn to create the seeds of efficacy or, you know, and they were here already. I was so proud of the work we were doing and I wanted to get to next level. And really the reality was I needed to lead in a different way. So um, it wasn't things I could do. It was more about who I am in my being as a leader and understanding that and then taking some actions. I mean, there are lots of different types of coaching and they all have... Um, wonderful value. Um, the kind of coaching I'm using here with with Karen and with the rest of the fellows, and, and in actual fact, we are observing to see whether it has an impact on collective efficacy. Is what we would call developmental coaching. And it a useful analogy is this is this glass of water that that Karen was talking about. So if you think about the leader as a as a cup, um, most leadership coaching and, in fact, leadership development, so courses and books and things that help to build leaders um, are probably like filling that cup. And that's a useful thing. There's absolutely a place for that. And, in fact, it's always where you would start. It's the lowest hanging fruit. It's the easiest to change. It's the toolkit. Um, Unfortunately, there are situations that emerge in many roles now, particularly the principal role, and COVID would be one of them, where there is no toolkit There's no book, there's no even TED talk that would tell you what to do. And so the approach of developmental coaching is a bit different. It looks at growing the size of the cup. Now, what I mean by that is that Karen can choose and find and learn and fill that cup. She doesn't need me to do that. And I'm not an education expert. What I am hoping to do in this kind of coaching with Karen and the fellows is support her to see more, to see herself differently, to see herself with less blind spots, to see her world and her school differently with less blind spots, less distortions, less filters that we all have, um, so that when she sees more, she's got more options about what to do. I mean, I mentioned earlier that, you know, Karen decided on a goal the things she really felt she needed to shift in her heart of hearts to make a difference to collective efficacy. And it wasn't new to her. It wasn't a new goal. In fact, it was something she knew she had to shift for ages. And so where we had to start was not at all the books she had to read or the tools she could employ or the things she could do or the toolkits or the things I'd learnt from, you know, corporate leaders. Where we started was 
what was holding her back from changing, what beliefs and assumptions she was holding that meant that while she had one foot on the accelerator towards this goal and she had this deep intent to shift it, we needed to first find out what the foot was on the brake and lift that foot up. You've said that beautifully because we're going to be finding out exactly what you did and what the priority was. We've made the point that leadership is such a complex role and the bottom line, I guess, is that school leaders can't do it all on their own, can they? So what are some of the decisions that you've come to around collective efficacy at your school and your particular way of working? Absolutely. And so for me, collective efficacy is really building an absolute and relentless shared belief that we have the ability to deliver the outcomes for our students. And, you know, that that sounds really simple, but it's actually really complex. And so for me, um, and I'm year five into my principalship, a lot of the focus prior to Menzies was around being, you know, me as the individual and as the principal working with a leadership team, being the key driver and motivator and force behind the improvement plans that we would construct and really taking high-level responsibility for developing that vision, identifying the strategies and then ensuring that I was um, resourcing to enable those to become a reality. And we were making good progress in in that trajectory. But I also had this um, knowledge that sitting behind me, if we were truly working in an efficacious way, that we could amplify our results and, and, and you know, really add some scale. And so for me, uh, in working with Angela, what really I needed to create a shift on was empowering the other leaders in my school to really embrace their role in leadership to model for me to model some vulnerability, increase trust, and to really then be asking them to be doing the same thing. So actually looking at the leaders in our team, empowering them to grow more, to step in more, um, to be vulnerable and to be really active in the innovation space and knowing all the time that they have my support to do that. And so really... Um, a part of you know that taking the foot off the brake is when my overarching drive and desire and innate leadership behaviour, I suppose, is to have absolute attention to detail all the time and be really focused on each of those steps to step into a space where I actually not just share the responsibility but empower others to step in and uh, release that responsibility if you like so that what we actually have is a co-constructed phoenix vision around leadership much more holistic much more empowering for the other leaders in our organization and also i suppose it's more developmental And at times it's more uncomfortable for all of us 
what it has built is a far higher degree of trust and authenticity between us. Just listening to you there explaining some of the reasons, that's difficult stuff to work through, isn't it? Sounded like you had to step away, if you like, and let things go. What was that like? What was it like? Exhilarating and terrifying, um, truthfully. However, we didn't get to that point in five minutes. It was really um, a deep process of reflection. And, you know, as I said, I had a lot to be proud of. There was so much growth and uh, restoration of confidence in our school and it was really looking for the edge of what next and having a plan that built on that was you know built on building efficacy having the courage to stay that plan and and to really stick at the work and so the the working on the plan part with Angela really took Good six months, didn't it, Angela? We spent the second half of last year looking at, you know, all of those things that perhaps I hadn't seen before, enhancing my knowledge, you know, broadening my view of how I could lead and how the others around me could lead. And then, of course, as the year began, um, COVID came and... My hyperdrive is to put my arms around, out and around and protect my community and, and to rein in all those things that I was talking about in terms of divulging, you know, responsibility and decision-making power and whatnot. However, you know, I could see that the minute I did that, I would be absolutely 100% putting my foot back on the brake and that would be counterproductive to all of that planning. And so we've absolutely progressed with that work irrespective of COVID. We'll be back after this quick message from our sponsor. You're listening to a podcast from Teacher Magazine, supported by the University of Newcastle, Australia, a leader in postgrad study. Education graduates enjoy a 96% employment rate and median starting salary of $85,000, above the national average. With multiple degrees available, including Masters in Leadership and Management in Education, special and inclusive education, the University of Newcastle offers flexible options including face-to-face and online modes of delivery so you can fit study around your lifestyle. And Angela, delving a bit deeper into that working relationship, what did you actually do in terms of catching up with each other? How regular was it? Uh, How did this all work? I've met with Karen and each of the fellows monthly And as I mentioned, we started with a single area of change they believed would make the biggest difference to their ability to lead collective advocacy in their school. And they each picked an area where they knew what to do, but for some reason continued to act in a way that was counter to how they knew they should lead. So it was an area where they were really stuck So I used a coaching methodology and continue to use a coaching methodology called Immunity to Change, which is designed to surface the assumptions that hold those unhelpful, counterproductive behaviours in place. And over time, we've worked together to build muscles of of self-observation and reflection, 
um, learn to see things more objectively, become aware of how we filter out information as a result of these assumptions. Um, but that all is preparing um, these leaders for the heart of the work, which is really a series of low-risk, small experiments um, that we design together and then we learn to step back and reflect on the objective data that these experiments provide rather than seeing things through our own familiar distorted lens. So things work together really gradually and sustainably to shift behaviour and mindsets in lockstep. Um, and it's incredibly gratifying to see Karen become free of assumptions that held her back and replace them with new assumptions and in doing so make significant progress on a goal that's really important to her. Um, but it's important to say that in doing this work together we're not just shifting this goal. Hopefully what we're doing is embedding um, habits and tools for continued growth. Okay. So we're going to come back to the topic of COVID to you, Karen. You said that things went ahead. They absolutely went ahead. And it could have been so easy, couldn't it, to revert back and snap back to that normal, to some kind of comfortable familiarity, I guess. Uh, given that you continued, I'd expect that these changes have started to have an impact now. So what kind of things have happened? If I want to just perhaps look back to the first round of flexible and remote learning and of course what we began to experience then you know as a school and as a system was this really strong sense of turbulence and um, there was a really strong reverberation and disruption to the things that we had planned and what could have happened is that we became engulfed in that disruption, I suppose, if you like. And instead, the leadership team and I sat and had a conversation about what would it look like if we were able to quiet the turbulence? What would we bring to our community? How would we convey that? And what would that mean for each of us? And so... I remember that very first meeting at the start of that time feeling quite um, stressed, I suppose, if you like, thinking about all of the important things that we needed to do in terms of getting 1,500 children home, 160 staff home, really in a very short space of time, ensure that the students were engaged in meaningful learning and then ensure that our staff are engaged in meaningful work and at the same time keep everybody well. And so, so not, not a small job. And what we really decided that was pivotal for us still sat alongside our, you know, our, our clear leadership plan was that there were a couple of things that really mattered. The first and foremost being that we needed to focus as a group on not just maintaining our connections to our community, whether that be students, parents, families, staff, but actually explicitly thinking about if we're going to build efficacy, 
how and what strategies will we use to build connections? Then, and we developed a set of activity, look, activities and strategies for, for building connections and thinking through each of our roles in that. Then we thought about two more things, really. How do we create security for our people? You know, when you think about our whole community, how do we create security? And we made some really conscious decisions about uh, slowing the school down, I suppose, if you like, so that we weren't introducing new, new platforms. We wanted platforms that our students were familiar with, that our staff were familiar with, that they had confidence in that we could really um, make sure that the learning piece there was really authentic and purposeful. Then the, the third thing that we really, really wanted to do was think about our workforce and really ensure that each and every person that um, has a role in our college had an authentic role to play. And so that, and that their role was really closely connected again to our kids. And so once we started to evolve those strategies, the, the noise, if you like, or that background noise that was a really overarching distractor, um, we were able to minimise that and really focus on the stuff that mattered and, and be calm, I suppose, calm and purposeful and really quite clear in our leadership work. And so through that period, uh, we came to get, we met more frequently, we problem solved more frequently, but always under the guise of those three headings. And it was really, you know, probably going to sound ridiculous, an affirming way to work in the, in the face of the pandemic where everything is uncertain. We had a real sense of clarity about what it was that we could needed to do. And so each time that we met, each time we were uh, strategising, I guess, if you like, it was with a sense of affirmation that we were 100% clear on how we would take those steps. Then uh, as, as flexible and remote came upon us, wave two, it came much, much quicker than the first time. And, and again, we had that experience of turbulence and noise and you know, almost outside pressure to be uh, responding really quickly to the unknown situation. And again, we went through that methodology of thinking about what is it that we wanted to deliver to our community. But we were in a unique position and just like my colleagues all around the state, so I'm not certainly not professing to have, you know, a font of knowledge that anybody else doesn't have. But we had a set of key learnings. We knew where we were strong last time and we knew where there were opportunities for us to improve. And so we found this time with that lens, um, we could uh, move back or migrate into flexible and remote learning really quickly, but we were able to enhance the experience for staff and for students. And really our thinking has been around how do we pivot as a leadership team at this moment in time to ensure that when we get to the end of this um, period of flexible and remote learning and when that we do that in the best possible shape. And not only that, that 
that pivot actually takes us to the end of the year so that the planning that we had around developing the capacity of our teachers that we main, you know, we retain a focus with integrity on that. But we're also thinking what do we need to be doing to ensure that when we bring our students and staff back physically to the community that we've considered their needs and done that in a way that they all feel valued. And of course, having that collective efficacy and building that as a strength within the school has made all of that possible by the sounds of it. I'm interested in what you've each learned from the process now. Firstly, Angela, from your side of things as a leadership coach. I've learned so much working with these school leaders and with Karen. I hadn't really had close exposure to school leaders and the complexity and difficulty of their role. Now, I've worked with senior leaders in other sectors and many of them are overwhelmed by the challenges they face. And it's truly a privilege to work with anyone who wants to grow and be a better version of themselves and is committed and willing to do what it takes. Um, But there's something very special about supporting school leaders to grow and knowing that it will lead to them creating an environment where teachers are thriving and growing and our children are thriving and growing. It really doesn't get more rewarding than that. And for you, Karen, leaving the school priorities aside just for a moment, how has it benefited you, your leadership skills and knowledge? For me personally, there's there's quite a few things, you know, I feel really humbled to be, you know, continually participating in this learning experience. And I guess I would say, first and foremost, renewing my commitment and belief in the students in our school and their capacity to learn. That's a really special place and a special reminder that when you reconnect with your own purpose as a lear- as a leader and a learner it helps re-energize you to keep going because the work is hard and the work is relentless and the work is complex and and never more so than this year and it gives me clarity in understanding how to strategize to go forward to put our school together i think I would say with honesty, working in this coaching model, and it really is um, an action research model, I guess, if you like, is the courage to be vulnerable in the leadership space and understand that in being vulnerable and open to learning and embracing reflection, that there's an opportunity to be genuinely innovative to to grow in the space and to try new skills that other people can appreciate and benefit from as well. I do believe that working in this way has helped me empower other learners and other leaders to step up to fulfil their leadership capacity, to to test and trial ideas and to be secure about making mistakes and to know that not being successful is sometimes the best learning opportunity and that if we've planned together, 
then we will be okay. So ultimately a far richer suite of leadership skills and beliefs and my sincere hope is that they will continue to grow over time. The other thing, and it really sits at the core of what MENS is is about, is creating this pipeline of leaders. And, you know, I have to say, quite honestly, I have a greater appreciation for the leaders across our systems, not just my system, but leaders in other schools, in other sectors, and for the challenges that they face, and they're not dissimilar to mine. We, you know, we are actually working for the same purpose. And so actually building those relationships, building those connections with like-minded individuals is really inspiring. I have to say that one of the most wonderful parts of the program is actually seeing the five fellows together. And we've developed this kind of <laughs> sense that it's another layer of collective efficacy, really. There's the collective efficacy that we support them to build in their own schools. But what about the power of the collective efficacy of school leaders who work across school boundaries to support each other? Absolutely. So it's been really interesting talking to you both today. And I want to thank you for sharing your work and those really personal reflections as well. It's been fascinating. Before we end, though... Where do things go from here? What's planned for 2021? Um, it's so hard to make plans these days. Who knows? <laughs> but our current plan at the moment is um, with, the, with the Menzies Fellowship that there'll be another um, application process where uh, school leaders from across, likely across Victoria, um, can apply. We'll take on another five fellows and we will expand the group of these um, school leaders that we're working with. So um, I know that there'll be a lot on social media that comes out probably towards the end of the year when heads get clear of um, 2020 inviting other leaders to participate. What's next? Really... Oh, goodness me. And as Angela said, in uncertain times, uh, who knows would probably be my first answer. But really, f for me, absolutely, thinking about um, how I continuously build the efficacy within our school. And, you know, I have to be honest and say I've moved on a step and um, I'm thinking about how do I extend that efficacy boundary so that it's 100% inclusive of our students and parents. So... I'm predicting some pretty big and exciting work as we extend that notion of efficacy further out into our community and more about sharing beliefs and aspirations. That's all for this episode. If you enjoyed this School Improvement Podcast, there are plenty of others to binge on in our archive at teachermagazine.com.au. That's also where you'll find the transcript of this episode and some related articles. And finally, we'd love for you to rate or review the podcast in your podcast app and subscribe to the channel to ensure that new episodes land in your feed as soon as they're available. You've been listening to a podcast from Teacher, supported by the University of Newcastle, Australia, a world leader in postgrad education. Apply now and maximise your potential.